appropriate, we are starting a new series, Beautiful Things, as we enter into this study on the Sermon of the Mount. Um, This amazing transformation that God produces in us as He comes and He speaks to us. As we study Matthew 5 through 7 over the next several weeks, the series is subtitled, The God Who Sees and Speaks and Saves. That we are, should be and are oftentimes astonished that we have a God that's not distant and far away, but a God who notices us and takes notice. And not only does He take notice of us, but He also cares and loves enough for us to speak into our lives. And for the purpose of seeing and speaking, it is so that He might save us and bring us salvation and to help us learn what it means to live as transformed people by the grace and the love of God the Father and by which we get the strength to live out this Christian walk that Jesus over these next several chapters will lay in front of us only for us to realize we have no power within ourselves to do it except that which God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sort of an umbrella verse that we want to think about as we come into this and get into the meat of these verses is this. It comes actually out of Hebrews 4.11. I'm sorry, 4.12. That the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Sobering words, words that we should take uh, Seriously, words that should cause our lives to pause for a moment and realize that as Jesus comes to give the longest discourse or longest sermon that he would give in one sitting, we should take note because God does see and God is speaking to us. And God is saving us. And God right now even is in each heart, excuse me, each heart that is in this room examining, scouring, scrubbing, working on, transforming. So that we would live as his people. Jesus comes to this fifth chapter of Matthew that we'll look at over the next few weeks immediately after choosing his disciples and John the Baptist preparing the way and the baptism of Jesus and the temptation that he goes through in the wilderness. And then he begins his ministry to the crowds at the end of verse, or chapter 4 where he is healed and he is fed and he is, is 
has taken care of paralytics, paralytics and, and give the gospel to many people in that northern region of Israel called Zebulon and Naphtali. And you'll remember back during um, our, uh, our Advent series that the prophet said a great light has shone in Zebulon and, and Naphtali. And this is that light that the prophet was talking about, that Jesus would come and dwell in Galilee in that, that area of northern Israel and begin to preach and teach. And this is the beginning of that, that teaching and that preaching here at this Sermon on the Mount, so that when we see in verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. We understand that these crowds are these people that have been accumulating over a snowball effect over the last several months of following Jesus, of being healed by Jesus, of, of hearing Jesus' teaching and wanting to know more about what does it mean for them to be disciples and followers of Christ Jesus. We might want to think a moment of and re- recall back to Moses as Moses has received the commandments off of Mount Oreb and now Jesus, the better and the true Moses, comes to give a deeper understanding of the law of God, that over these next two chapters we'll begin to see that the law of God goes deeper than our external actions, as important as those are, that God truly looks at the heart and the motivation for those external actions that we are called to do. God's Word has the power to change you and I. God's Word has the power to give us hope and to give us certainty. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for this crowd. He's bringing them hope. He's bringing them a certainty. He's he's actually commissioning them as God's people on how to live. But take note, too, the first thing that he does before he moves into Life as a disciple of Christ, the very first thing that he does is blesses. Maybe you've never understood that that's God's heart. That God's heart is to come and to bless you. That the purpose of the law itself was to be a blessing to you and to me. And that as Jesus comes to exegete, to open up, to expound upon the law given in the Old Testament. He starts it out with, not you've done wrong, not you have failed, not you have messed it all up. But he starts out by saying, I bless you. This morning we'll look briefly at the first of the Beatitudes where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I just am struck at how, what a wonderful truth that is, that when God comes, God recognizes our poverty and beckons us to recognize our own bankruptcy so that he might bless us and fill us with his spirit. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds. This word seeing is a word that is intuitive. 
It means that not only does, is it a vision that enters into the eyes of Jesus, but he has a perception of the need of the crowd, that he has taken notice of, of where they are, what's going on in their lives, what their situations are. It's a perceptive, a perceptive vision that Jesus has when he looks upon the crowds. And isn't that good to know this morning? That even as you sit here this morning, that God knows exactly what's going on in your life. God knows exactly where you are. He knows what you are struggling with. He knows where you have failed. He knows where you're having some sense of victory. He sees it. He perceives it from afar and close. That God has not left you alone. He's not left me alone. But He's intimately engaged right now in your life and in my life. For what purpose? So that He might speak. Speak hope into your life. To speak repentance into your life, maybe. To speak comfort. To speak power. To speak transformation. Why? Because the whole purpose in the Son of God coming was to save you. Save you for what and from what? To save you from your own ways that lead to death. From your own ways that are death. From your own sense of, I can do it. And failing over and over again. To say, if you've come to that point, you're blessed. This word blessed means you're fortunate, you're You're astonishingly fortunate. If you've come to the point of the poverty of your own soul. Because if you have, He will fill you. Think of of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were really good people. I know they get a bad rap sometimes, but they were good guys. Many of them were elders in their church. They could quote scripture. They were doing good things in the public. They prayed a lot. They did it three times a day. They knew their scriptures from the the Torah, from backwards to forwards and forwards to backwards. But they never recognized that they could never in their heart come to a place where they, in their motivations, could do it and do it perfectly. And so they missed it. They missed what God was offering. They relied in their own sense of wisdom, their own sense of pride, of their own righteousness and the acts that they had done. Instead of being totally relying upon the act of Jesus and the grace that was being offered for them so that they might live that life they were called to live. How many of us are doing that today? How many of us are trying to live in our own power? To live in our own self-righteousness? 
Because we think somehow that's what holiness looks like. But how would God define holiness? How would a holy, holy, holy God define the meaning of holy? Isn't that beyond our comprehension of what that might be? I don't really understand what a thrice holy God means totally by what it means to be holy. All I know is the closest I've ever seen to that is Jesus. His holiness. The very revealed and unveiled holiness of God on earth. And in in light of Him, I come to a place of understanding my own emptiness. My own spiritual bankruptcy. That there's never a place where my holy could be holy enough. There's never a place where my work could be work enough. Jesus says when you come to that place, when you get to that part of life where you you understand it, you're fortunate because the kingdom of heaven is yours. How can that be? Because you're relying totally upon Jesus and his work to gift you the kingdom of God. Where the Pharisees missed it, you and I must see it. That the transforming power of the word of God doesn't transform us for the sake of us just being better, which it does. But that's not the point. The point is it transforms us to see the glory of God at work in our own lives so that we might reflect that glory to the world. For the glory of God. Some of you will remember the story of Dr. Carson, Ben Carson, presidential candidate, surgeon at John Hopkins, now head secretary of HUD. What you may not know about his story is when he was younger, he had a real anger problem. And so much so that as a preteen boy or right around the time of, of early teens, uh, his anger was so bad that he got upset with a friend and had decided that he was going to, next time that guy picked on him, he was going to kill him. So he went and got a knife. And sure enough, this neighborhood bully came and picked on him one more time. And he pulled that knife out and he went to stick it in his belly. And when he did, the blade dropped off the knife. And in that moment, Ben Carson realized that anger had a hold on him in such a way that it would ruin his life. And he needed help. It wasn't something that he could overcome. And he turned to God. He ran home and he opened up his scriptures and he gave his life to God. And his anger issue became under control. Because the word of God had transformed him. The grace of Christ had transformed something that he was unable to do into something he would live the rest of his life. Personifying a man of patience, a man of grace, a man of great prayer. 
That's the purpose of these Beatitudes that we'll study. It's the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It is to encourage us in this transformation to show us that we are God's people and that we too might be transformed to help us every day. Because God does see our condition every day. Because God does speak to us every day in His Word and through His Spirit. And because God does speak a blessing, the blessing of love, the blessing of discipline, the blessing of discipleship, for the purpose of God saving us and bringing us to Himself as a people. And so Jesus would say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Interesting thing about this one particular verse and also the 16th verse, I'm sorry, the 12th verse, they're both in a present tense grammar. They're both present tense phrases. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because right now yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven right now. These two verses, in an in a exegetical sense, in an interpretation sense, in a, in a study sense, are what's called an inclusio. They, they are like bookends that we're called to see that and to, and to open up the middle of the book and to, to be able to study the in-between things and apply them to our lives. So Jesus says right off the bat, let's get the first lesson straight. If you will recognize your need for God, if you recognize your need for me, if you recognize that you cannot do this in your own power, you are fortunate. Because I am with you and will deliver to you the kingdom of heaven right now. Well, why is that important to us? Well, I don't know about you, but for me it's important to know the security of my salvation. To know what Jesus has done can never be taken away. What Jesus has given can never be stolen. What Jesus has delivered cannot be rejected. That Jesus has seen the heart of me that comes and says, I have no hope but you, Lord Jesus. Where is your hope? Maybe you have a sense of hopelessness. Maybe there's a sense of I've tried and I've tried and I've tried just to get myself good enough. But I mess it up every time. Or maybe you've heard messages from the world. You're not good enough, nor will you ever be good enough. Oftentimes we hear in the world, you're not pretty enough, or you're not smart enough, or you're not rich enough. And isn't that the world's wisdom? The world's wisdom that says to you and I, you must be elevated by your own human standards to be accepted, to be acceptable, 
But the Lord comes to you and I this morning and says, wherever you have failed, wherever you think you have victory, whatever you're struggling with, bring it to me. Come to me with it. Recognize the power I have to cleanse you, to fill you, to heal you, and to give you life. And then you will know that the kingdom of heaven is yours. Not based upon you, but based upon what Jesus has done for you and for me. We can be transformed because God does see our condition, but also because God speaks blessing to us. He instructs us. The rest of these chapters will be about instruction on how do we live. How are we to pray about our marriages, about our finances? What is our response to the blessings that God gives us? That's the outline of the Sermon on the Mount. There's blessing, but then there's our response to the blessing. And our response to the blessing, the reason why we're blessed with the Spirit up front is because the response to the blessing can only be accomplished by the Spirit living within us. And it's in that that God shows us, He teaches us. He pulls us along. He uses life circumstances. He uses His Word. He uses other believers to speak into our life and to to pull us along and to help us along, even disciplining us. Sometimes we know when God is at work in our life through areas of discipline that we're going through. The writer of Hebrews got this. The writer of Hebrews, though, said, don't forget that when God is doing this, when God is putting you and I through a season of discipline, don't forget he's treating you as sons and daughters. You see, even that is for your good. Even that is for my good. The Pharisee in me wants to say, God, thanks for doing that. I've got it from here. but the impoverished spirit of me recognizes that's an impossible task. That that which Christ accomplished on the cross, he was serious about. And that without his accomplishment on the cross, I'm sunk. But praise God, the work is finished. The spirit is given. And he is alive within you and I to empower us to live the life that we are called to live. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Because God has lifted us up, we can also be extravagant. What do you think of the kingdom of God? What do you think of the kingdom of heaven? Is it so far away and so nebulous that you really can't imagine what it might be like? Well, think of the greatest riches on earth. Think of the greatest idea of environment on earth that you can possibly think of and then realize that that's just dung. 
that it's just wood and stay straw and hubble. And that what God has prepared for you and I is beyond our imagination. It's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. I don't know if any of you have been to the Biltmore Inn down in Asheville, North Carolina. But if you have, you, you know it's a, it's a beautiful, wonderful mansion that, that Vanderbilt had, had built. And I was out on the veranda. It was one of our favorite places to go when we lived down there. And I was out on the veranda one afternoon thinking, boy, this would be nice. I was meant to be a Vanderbilt. And then the Holy Spirit struck me. Brad, this is going to burn. This is going to crumble. This is going to burn up like straw. And I have something much, much better prepared for you, son. I have something that's being built right now for you in my glorious renewed heaven and earth. Hold on. Don't get cut off. Cut off. Cut. Yeah. Man, I missed that hour of sleep. <laughs> Don't get caught up in the small stuff. In comparison to what God has planned for you and I, it's all small stuff. But remember, poor in spirit here means rich in the riches of God there. And because God has been extravagant with us, it allows us to be extravagant with one another. Think of the way that God has loved you. Has He been a miser in the way that He has loved you? Has He withheld love from you? Has He put anything beyond the condition of His Son's blood on the love He has for you? No, the first thing He has said to you is, Blessed are you. How then can we not be extravagantly lovers of each other? Think of the mercy that God has given you. Has it been cheap mercy, just a little bit of mercy, or was it extravagant mercy that God has showed you? I grew up in the church. I've been following Christ since I was probably five years old. But it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I really realized I was dirty, rotten, black-hearted to the core. And I was poor, and I was bankrupt in my heart, I was bankrupt in my spirit, and I had lived a life thinking that I do good, 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 and good, and good, and good, and I'll do some more good, and then God will owe me. How more black can you get than that? I was blackmailing the, the creator of the universe with, with me. Guess who else? I was in good company. Job did exactly the same thing. The Pharisees were doing exactly the same thing. And it was at that moment, somewhere in my early 30s, that I realized that the holiness of God was something way beyond my comprehension. Where God, the Holy Spirit, came into my life and said, Kid, you don't have what it takes. You really need to rely totally upon Jesus. But it's okay. He's really trustworthy and worthy of your trust. 
in your blackmailing of me, in your, in your attempts to manipulate, this is God speaking to me, in my, my attempts to manipulate God, in my attempts to blackmail God, in my attempts to show Him my record. God continually was patient and kind and merciful to show me how deep His mercy went, even while I was in rebellion. He has shown me an extravagant amount of mercy. How can we not show that same mercy to one another? How can we not be merciful people? Well, not only has He lifted us up with extravagance, but we're also identified with God on an eternal level. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Blessed are the poor and bank accounts, blessed are the poor in titles, blessed are the poor in education. But he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Why does he say that? Because you and I are created in his image. That you and I are to be in a relationship with God that's spirit to spirit. That you and I are given the Holy Spirit within us so that we might know the mind of God, that we might know the ways of God, that we might have the strength to follow God where He goes, where He calls us to go, but also that we might enjoy our relationship with God. Isn't that good to know God gave you His Spirit this morning, not just for all the ancillary things that are good and important, but for the primary thing that you and I might enjoy relationship with Him. Some of you will know the first question, the shorter catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The point of you and I being created in the image of God and His Spirit being put within us is that we might enjoy Him. What does it mean to enjoy someone but to be in their company? To be in their presence? To know what favors them? To want to give them your joy. You and I have been blessed with the grace to be able to identify with God spirit to spirit. Because God has secured our hope in that relationship spirit to spirit. We can live risking forgiveness, risking mercy, risking love, and risking very dynamic lives for the sake of the gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Many of us in this room, I know your stories. And several of you will relate to this. There's nothing like a chronic disease to put life in perspective. Nothing like having an ailment that you have no control over that you're at the total mercy of the doctors or the psychiatrist or the counselors. And that sense of helplessness that you feel, that sense of poverty. But also that sense of joy and excitement when you hear 
the words of comfort that bring you hope. You recognize that that is a gift from the outside coming to you. That it's not something that you've ginned up. It's not something that you've promoted. It's not something that you've built within yourself. But it's an alien hope that comes to you from an outside source. And all you can do is receive it and rejoice. And then enjoy. I talked several weeks ago about, and some of you have seen it on Facebook, that Lee, my wife, had donated her kidney to me back in 96 and that we had a kidney transplant. We joked in that thing, the news reporter had asked me, well, what's she getting out of the deal? Well, she's getting a dining room table. It was just a quip. She got the dining room table because she wanted the dining room table. But, but don't you see, it was a gift I couldn't repay. And if I had said, well, the dining room table is in payment for the gift, then I just valued the gift, didn't I? Your gift to me is a dining room. It's worth the dining room table to me. What if it had been a Cadillac? It, it probably would have gone a little better. But, but it still wouldn't have reached the gift of life that was given to me in terms of physical life. How could I ever repay that? Now, there was another couple in the community that did the same thing. The husband or the wife had given the husband a, a kidney. They were, in the, they were in the newspaper. We were on the TV, and, and I ran into her. She managed a little restaurant. I ran into her, and I said, you know, how are you doing? She said, I'm doing well. I said, how's your husband? Well, I don't know because he's left me. And, I, and my friend who was with me said, you know, somebody will take that boy out back and teach him a lesson. And I said, yeah, that's, I, I understand that, but let me tell you something. I understand him too. Because when you get a gift so valuable like life, it'll, you either have to receive it and enjoy it, or it'll drive you crazy trying to repay it. The grace of God has been given to you and I as a gift. Our security of the reception of the kingdom of heaven has been given totally on the merit of Jesus to you and I as a gift. And when you receive a gift like a kidney, you, you want to live better, you want to, you want to watch your diet, you want to do the things that it takes to care for it, to to show honor and respect for that which has been done for you. You live a life that's different than maybe the life you lived before. You don't eat as many ribeyes, maybe. But if you're caught up in a debtor's ethic trying to repay it, you never can enjoy it. God has given you and I the gift of life, eternal life, given us the gift of spirit, spirit to spirit, that we might enjoy Him and live forever with Him. God has given you and I the strength to be able to live that life afterwards, that life of healing afterwards. But to have that, we must recognize it comes from Him and Him alone. Fortunate are you. Blessed are you. 
if you're poor in your spirit, if you realize that apart from the work of Jesus, I've got nothing, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.